0: I ran into a a poem entitled My Choice this week that I want to read uh, some from. It's by William McChesney. You probably don't know the name. And forgive me, the language is somewhat antiquated as it was written in 1964. So ignore the gaps that you may sense here, okay? You'll see what I mean when I get to it. He says this. I want my breakfast served at eight, with ham and eggs upon the plate. A well-broiled steak I'll eat at one and dine again when day is done. I want an ultra-modern home and in each room a telephone. See what I mean? Soft carpets, too, upon the floors, and pretty drapes to grace the doors. A cozy place of lovely things like easy chairs with inner springs. And then I'll get a small TV. Of course, I'm careful what I see. I want my wardrobe, too, to be of neatest, finest quality, with latest style and suit and vest. Why shouldn't Christians have the best? I found that phrase intriguing. Why shouldn't Christians have the best? Why shouldn't we have the best jobs, the best houses, the best careers, the best cars, the best vacations, the best lives? Or in the words of Joel Osteen, shouldn't you have your best life now? Doesn't following Christ mean health, wealth, and happiness today? Obviously, if you couldn't pick up on that sarcasm, I would say no. Uh, But if that's true, what are we pursuing? What should our motivation and our source of joy be in this life? If it's not to have the best, if it's not to engage in the things that this world values, then what are we living for? What are we pursuing today? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 15 through 27, Paul lays out what should be the goal and the mission of our lives and holds himself up as an example. Let's read 1 Corinthians 9, verses 15 through 27 together. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make any full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, Father, we've celebrated who you are. We've celebrated the glory and the honor and the wisdom that you have. All worship is appropriate for you. And Lord, we've celebrated the fact that you chose to come to this earth to die for us, to shed your blood, to pay the penalty for our sins, to redeem a people for your own possession. We celebrate that fact as well. Lord, we recognize this morning that you have called us to a task as a church. Lord, you have placed a goal, a mission before us. And you have asked us to be faithful in that as we wait for you to return. So Lord, as we study this passage together, as we focus on what you've called us to as a church, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, speak through me, prepare our hearts and prepare our minds to hear this message. Lord, use it for the sake of the gospel, use it for the sake of the world, use it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week, those of you that are with us know that Paul lifted himself and Barnabas up as an example for this Corinthian church, an example of surrendering or laying down their rights and their freedoms. This week, Paul continues his critique of the church's disputes over their rights and freedoms by doubling down on the mission, by doubling down on what the purpose is, why he was willing to lay down his rights and his freedom for the sake of others. And so we talked about making our rights secondary to our mission last week. This week, he details what that means. And we see that making our rights secondary to our mission means embracing three things. First, embracing Paul's desire in gospel preaching, embracing Paul's disposition in gospel preaching, and embracing Paul's dedication in gospel preaching. Paul's desire, Paul's disposition, and Paul's dedication let's first look at Paul's desire in gospel preaching look at verse 15 he tips his hand that he's picking up right where he left off this was an awkward place to break but we had to break somewhere he says but continuing his thought right but I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision here in this section in this paragraph we're going to see five truths about Paul five aspects of his ministry that he relates to us that we are to emulate as well. First, we see Paul's unimpeachable motive. Paul's unimpeachable motive. He says, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing to secure any such provision. Now remember, in the past, Paul talked about how he had laid down his rights, how he had the right to be paid, how he had the right to take a wife with him, how he had the right to eat whatever he wanted, but he had laid down those rights for the sake of the Corinthian church and for the sake of the gospel. It's exactly what we've been talking about over the last two weeks. Paul affirms that our rights are secondary to our love for one another, right? Love limits liberty. Then last week, Paul said that our rights are secondary to our mission as well, to the task that God has called us to as a church. So Paul is saying, I have not made use of these rights because I have no desire to get paid from you, because I am about the mission of the church. I am about seeing the gospel go forward. And so he goes on and he says, and nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Just in case you feel like I was being passive aggressive here, and saying, no, I don't really want any money, I'm not really asking for anything, hoping that they'll give him something, that's not Paul's approach here. He's not saying I'm desiring to just subtly ask for money. There were more mature churches that he had asked to help support him not this church. He said, I've laid down that right because you are a weak church, because you cannot take that yet because I don't want anything to be an obstacle for you understanding the gospel. Just clarifying, he said, I'm not asking for money. Paul defers his right to be paid as a demonstration of his priority for sharing the gospel. He said, I would rather share the gospel and have that not be an obstacle for you than receive payment from you, even though I could demand that right. It's exactly what we talked about last week. Okay? So we see Paul's unimpeachable character or motive. Then we see Paul's undying joy. This is where things get interesting. Look at verse 15 again. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. We go, hold on a second, Paul. Isn't that a little serious? Isn't that a little serious to say I would rather die than take some money from this church? And in addition to that, isn't boasting bad? Isn't boasting a problem? We're not called to boast, right? Well, let's define boasting here real quickly. This word boasting literally means to glory in, to celebrate or rejoice in something. And so Paul's use of the word boasting can either be positive or negative. Negatively, he can talk about boasting in ourselves, boasting in our own pride, our own arrogance, our own ability. That's precisely what he's been critiquing about in the the church in Corinth. Their pride, their self-sufficiency, their thinking that they were so good and so mature and so impressive. On the other hand, boasting in God, consistently in Paul's theology, is seen as a positive thing. Boasting in the right object, boasting in the right place, boasting in the gospel is a good thing, not a negative. So what is Paul celebrating? What is he glorifying in in this text? Well, is it his call to preach? His call to preach the gospel. Look at the verse, next verse, verse 16. We see Paul's unquenchable necessity. Verse 16, look at this. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul said, okay, Is, is it this preaching of the gospel that I have been given? Is this this task that God gave me? He says, no, I have to preach the gospel. I can't help myself. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel said, it wasn't my choice. I didn't appoint myself, but it is my responsibility, right? It is his responsibility. This is very similar to uh, Jeremiah. If you know Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he was known as the weeping prophet. Because Jeremiah was raised up as a prophet, God said, you take this prophecy and you go deliver it to the people, and oh, by the way, they're not going to listen to a word you say. They're not going to listen to anything you have to say, and they're going to persecute you because of it. But I still want you to go, and I still want you to share In fact, if you're looking for a little light reading this afternoon, read Jeremiah 20, verses 7 through 18. It's a fascinating text. In that, Jeremiah gets fed up. He's like, I have been preaching this message you've been calling me to preach, God, and nobody's listening, and they keep persecuting me. I'm fed up. I'm done. I've had it. I'm just going to close my lips. I'm going to stop speaking because I'm tired of being made fun of, and I'm tired of being persecuted for this message you've called me to deliver. And in that text, it is fascinating because he tries to stop it up and he tries to stop this message that God has given him and he can't help himself. It's like a fire burning in his bones and he says, I have to prophesy, I cannot stop. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I can't help myself. So therefore, I don't have any ground for boasting because I'm preaching the gospel, right? And in some ways, I can sympathize with that same idea. Those of you that know me very well know I'm an introvert. I would rather be sitting in the back corner of this auditorium where nobody else can see me, but woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. There's a compelling compulsion. You can't help yourself. And so as a result, Paul is saying, my boasting can't be in my gospel preaching. I can't stop it. He can't stop his gospel preaching. So what is it then? Is it his stewardship of the gospel? Look at verse 17 and we see Paul's unsolicited stewardship. Verse 17 says this, "For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship." Paul doubles down on this theme and he says, "My stewardship of the gospel, my appointment as an apostle, wasn't my choice either. I didn't make that selection. I was given this stewardship from God. Remember Acts chapter 19 or chapter nine. Paul is on the way to Damascus. He is headed to Damascus to persecute the church to take them captive, to kill some, to stamp out Christianity, if he at all possible. And God strikes him blind on the road and says, no, you're my man. You're mine, and I have a mission for you. Paul wasn't asking. He wasn't like, well, I'm just kind of doing my thing. God, if you want to call me to something, I'm all for it. No. Paul was like, I'm headed this direction. And God says, no, you're headed that direction. Right? He was given a stewardship. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, God says this. For he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul's boasting can't be in his ministry stewardship. He didn't ask for it. And that's precisely what Paul is saying here. Look, I could try not to do this, but I'm still entrusted with this stewardship regardless of my will and what I choose to do here. Paul's like, me taking credit for my apostleship, for my stewardship of the gospel, is kind of like you taking credit for a sneeze. You ever think about that? You know that moment, like, especially if you can't get the sneeze to come, you know, and you're stuck in kind of that, like, you don't, you don't know what I'm talking about, you've been there, right? It's like that moment, and all of a sudden you sneeze, right, and people are like, well done. Good job. That was impressive. I was like, it wasn't my call. I didn't choose this. I didn't call myself. God says, you are my man. I can't take any credit for that stewardship. So what then? What is Paul boasting in here? What is Paul celebrating and rejoicing in? Look at verse 18. And we see Paul's unexpected reward. Verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. It says, What then is my reward? That I may preach the gospel free of charge. My reward, my boasting, my celebration is in the fact that I have laid down my rights. He says, his joy, the only thing he can celebrate contributing to this equation is his deferred rights for the sake of the gospel. He can't take credit for his preaching. He can't take credit for his stewardship. He can't take credit for being an apostle What he can celebrate is the fact that he laid down his rights to present the gospel free of charge to this church. We see our first point here. Christ's mission, the Great Commission, the task for which he has called us as a church, requires a gospel minded desire. It requires a laser like focus on the heart of the gospel and our call to preach that gospel to everyone who doesn't know it. Our joy, excuse me, our joy. Must come from personal sacrifice and seeing people presented with the gospel. Our joy, our motivation doesn't come from health, wealth, and happiness today. It comes from an unkillable motivation of seeing other people come to a saving knowledge of Christ, from presenting that message to a lost and dying world. So ask yourself where is your source of joy? Where is your source of joy? Where is your source of rejoicing? Your source of boasting? Your source of celebrating in this life? Is it something that you've gained? Your achievements, your ministry, your gifting, your abilities? The list could go on and on and on. Or is it in something you've given up? In seeing others hear the gospel? What are you boasting in? What are you celebrating? What do you rejoice in? something you've gained, or something you've been able to give up for the cross of Christ? Ask yourself that question, because Christ's mission requires a gospel-minded desire. We should desire, our desire should match Paul's. Our motivation, our boasting, our celebration should match Paul's in making the gospel our chief aim. What motivates you? But making our rights secondary to our mission also means embracing Paul's disposition in gospel preaching. Look at verse 19. Paul gives us a hint into his philosophy of ministry, the way he's gone about this in his own ministry. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul gives this little caveat. He says, though I am free from everyone, though I am free from all of you, I could ask for payment. I could Eat whatever I want. I could go wherever I want. I could marry an unbel- or a believing wife. I could do all of these things. I am free from all of your expectations because I haven't asked anything from you. I have instead chosen to make myself a servant to all. I have adopted a servant's mentality. I have adopted a servant's mindset. I have placed myself in front of you to wash your feet as Christ did in order that you can hear the gospel. And remember, this Greek culture despised servants. They despised manual labor. They thought that was beneath them. Paul says, the way I have reached people with the gospel is on my knees serving them. He says, though I'm free, I have made myself a servant to all. What is his reason? He comes back to it just to double down on this point. That I might win more of them. That I might win more of them. How do we reach a dying world? How do we reach the lost in our lives? Way number one that we learned from Paul here we reach unbelievers by serving them, not vilifying them. Hear me on this. We reach unbelievers by serving them, not vilifying them. We must not see, or we must see people as the lost, not the enemy. I'm not saying there isn't an enemy out there. I'm not saying it's not a real threat. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But we reach people by serving them, not by vilifying them. Secondly, Paul gives us an example of what he means in verses 20 through 22. He gives us the examples of Jews, Gentiles, and the weak. Look at this section. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. This idea of win is the idea of seeing them come to a saving knowledge of Christ, seeing them added to the church. It says, I became as a Jew, I became as one under the law, in order to win those under the law. This is interesting. As I read this, this should spark a question in your minds. Paul says he became as a Jew. Anybody got a question in their heads? Wasn't Paul a Jew? Right? This question should be bothering us. But like, Paul, you were a Jew. In other books, you say you were a Jew of Jews. You were the most Jewish person that you knew. Paul says, I had to become like a Jew. This just seems strange to us. And the only thing I could conclude, and the thing that most of the commentaries conclude as well, is that Paul's identity had shifted so significantly, it was so wrapped up in his first and foremost identity as a believer, as a Christian, that he had to work to become Jewish, to act Jewish again, because he was so fundamentally identified as a believer, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, that he had to go out of his way to act and look Jewish again. In the same way that he went out of his way to meet the Gentiles, to meet those that were weak. Second principle we learn from Paul here. We reach unbelievers by prioritizing our identity as Christians. Our identity as Christians, as Christ followers, trumps every other identity and group that we participate in. Our identity as Christians is more important than our national identity. You being a Christian is more important than you being an American. Our identity as Christians is more important than our ethnic identity. It's more important than our cultural identity. It's more important than anything else about us. And yet Paul could say, I adapt, I lay down my cultural things, my preferences, and my preferred way of doing things in order to see people one with the gospel. Because my identity as a Christian comes first. Thirdly, we see Paul's motivation here at the end of this section. Look back at verse 22. He goes on, and I love this phrase. It principalizes. It's a summary of everything. Why did Paul do the things he did? Look at verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. We pick up on a theme there. All things, all people, all means save some He goes on and he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. He says, I have laid down all of my preference. I have laid down all of my rights. I have laid down all of my freedoms. Why? To see some people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now, what Paul is not saying here is he is not saying, I have laid down my doctrinal convictions. I have laid down my theology of what the word is and the inerrancy of the word. He's not saying I have laid down my understanding of the Trinity, one God, three persons. He's not saying I have laid down my doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ's blood paid for our sin and his righteousness was granted to us. He's not saying he has laid down his doctrine. Paul fights very hard for correct doctrine in other books in the New Testament. But he's saying I have laid down all things that matter to me personally instead of are about the mission. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Third principle we learn about reaching unbelievers. We reach unbelievers by laying down our preferences, not defending them. We reach a lost and dying world by sacrificing our preferences. Even some of these cultural identifiers that were like, I am so this. Well, you're first and foremost a Christian says we lay down these things, we lay down our preferences rather than defending them in order to see people one with the gospel. As a result, we learn here, I think, that Christ's mission requires a servant-minded disposition. We must take on the mentality and the attitude of servants if we're going to see people one with the gospel. As a church, this means that we adapt our approach in missions, and in outreach while keeping our message clear on the gospel. But we're willing to lay down our other preferences for how things are done in order to see people one with the gospel. We don't change on the message. We don't change on the gospel. We don't adapt or contextualize the message. But we move into cultures and we move into environments and we lay down the way we would prefer to do things in order to see those people one for Christ. An important distinction is worth noting here At Faith Bible Church, the the missions team has two different key areas that they focus on. The first is foreign missions. It involves crossing ethnic and cultural and language barriers to see people reached with the gospel who wouldn't otherwise have a chance to hear it. As opposed to local outreach, which is the idea of going out into our community, into people that would already have a chance to hear the gospel, but we take that message to them. This sort of principle here of having a servant-minded disposition totally affects how we handle foreign missions and local outreach as a church. We sacrifice to send people to cross-cultural, cross-ethnic, cross-religious, cross-geographic barriers in order to see them one for Christ. We as a church sacrifice in order to see people sent into those cultures and into those communities that they wouldn't otherwise get the chance to hear the gospel. It's hard, but it's worth it to see disciples made of every nation. It's also why as a church we prioritize raising up indigenous church planters in those communities. Because someone who's already a part of the culture, already a part of the language, understands the culture and can speak that message with clarity in a much easier way than somebody that's like from, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska, trying to go over and adapt to a culture overseas. And so we do that. I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. But our priority is to raise up people from within the community to see them reaching their own community. Our point is our disposition should match Paul's. Do you have a servant-minded disposition? Are you willing to get down on your knees and give up your preferences for the sake of seeing someone else one to Christ? Whether it's someone in your own backyard or whether it's someone hundreds of miles away. Pursuing the mission requires a servant-minded disposition. But finally, pursuing Christ's mission means embracing Paul's dedication in gospel preaching. Look at verse 24. Paul gives us an illustration here. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Well, this is fascinating. This illustration makes sense to us. We're we're inundated with athletic terminology and all about sports and activities and things like that, right? This illustration makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, the whole thing of only one person gets the prize doesn't really resonate with us so much anymore. But we understand what he's talking about. There's only one winner, right? And he says, the the irony is these athletes exercise self-control in all things. They moderate their diet and they work out however many hours a day and they do it all, for what he defines as as a perishable wreath, a perishable prize. This was particularly the case because the Olympics and things like that were in the backyard of the Corinthians. They knew the games. They knew these sort of athletic endeavors. And the prize that someone got after all that work, after doing all those things, after beating everybody else, was a little wreath that was wrapped up, made from plants. It lasted about as long as the flowers on your counter at home do and they put all this time, they put all this effort, they make everything else secondary to this when this thing is just going to blow away. It's the same thing as our culture today. Every championship that gets won in the NBA, in the NFL, in the Olympics, and the medals, everything gets handed out. If you interview those people, if you watch interviews with them afterward, the day afterward, they set about for the next one. And that medal and that trophy goes in a case somewhere And it's essentially worthless. He says, these athletes give all this effort for something that will just go in a case and won't matter. The correlation is we as believers strive for something different. What does he say our prize is? They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable prize. I love this word. It literally conveys the idea of not corruptible, not destroyable, indestructible, eternal. Now, any idea where this term comes up next in the book of 1 Corinthians? I'm going to tip my hat here. We're going to be here in a few months. The next place that this term comes up is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there real quickly in your Bibles. Turn to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It comes up first in verse 42 and then in 50 through 54. I'm going to tip my hat here. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Paul is addressing their misunderstandings about the resurrection. We'll hopefully handle this in March or April of next year. But look with me at what he says here in verse 42. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. He's talking about our immortal bodies. He's talking about our renewed bodies after the resurrection. Then jump down to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul says the prize that we pursue is not a wreath that's going to dry up and blow away. The prize that we pursue is an imperishable, eternal reward from God. We live for something that's not going to rust away and not going to fall apart. We live for something that's reserved in heaven, an eternal prize of being with Christ one day. In short, we run to obtain the prize of eternal, imperishable glory. Our enthusiasm to reach people with the gospel today should match the prize that we've been promised someday in heaven. Does your enthusiasm for the mission today match the glory of the prize you've been promised in Christ? Lastly, Paul gives us one more example here in chapter 9. He looks at this situation, he says, verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, our mission has a target. We have a goal we are pursuing. It does us no good to run around aimlessly or box pointlessly. Now, I personally don't resonate a whole lot with Paul's illustration here because I find that all running that isn't chasing after some sort of a ball is pretty much aimless running. I only participated in sports where if I was running, I was chasing an object. This whole running around in circles on a track or whatever, like, more power to you. But he's saying we're running pursuing an object. A runner only runs if they have a target in mind, right? A boxer only boxes if they've got somebody they're trying to hit. It doesn't make any sense to box at the air. The the air isn't going to fight back. He says it doesn't make any sense. He says the mission must have a target, What is our target? What is the target of Christ's mission? That's really easy. It's really easy to understand. It's really hard to do. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Speaking to the disciples, speaking to the church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Notice the symmetry, Paul saying, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, excuse me. Therefore make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. If that isn't the aim of your life, if that isn't the purpose of your life, Paul says you are running aimlessly and you are beating the air. You are wasting your time, you are wasting your energy for something that's that's a perishable wreath that's ultimately just going to blow away. This is the mission. This is the purpose. This is the target of our task. But, he says, the mission also requires intense training. Verse 27, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, this mission is going to require intense training. It's going to require discipline. It's going to require self-control. In high school, Um, I was a basketball player in high school. I didn't do wrestling. Wrestling was introduced later at our school. Um, I never really understood wrestlers. If you're a wrestler out there, by by all means, more power to you, truthfully. Um, I never quite understood wrestling, but they kind of had this this macho mentality. You know, wrestlers were tougher than everybody else. Maybe that's true. I I don't really know. When I played football with these guys, they didn't seem tougher than everybody else. But who knows? And the wrestlers had this mantra that they always said as they ran around in their sweatsuits around the gym. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Okay? It didn't make much sense as I saw those guys, but it makes sense in this context. The mission requires intense training. Notice Paul's terminology. I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Pursuing this mission, pursuing this task, will require pain. It will require self-discipline. It will require self-control. It will require focus on the task. And some of us have a tendency to approach our Christian walk more like a leisurely stroll. Like we're out hoping to get somewhere, sometime, at some point, but we're not really shooting for anything. We're just enjoying the weather and the environment that we're in. Paul says, our mission requires a target. You have to know where you're going and you have to be willing to pursue it with everything you have. And he offers this warning, lest... After preaching to others, I should myself be disqualified. We must pursue this goal all out. Third principle from this text, Christ's mission requires a single-minded dedication. We must have a single-minded dedication as a church and as believers to see the gospel go to places it's never been and to see the gospel penetrate hearts that have not yet placed their faith in Christ kind of like if I were to ask you to prepare for a seafaring voyage. I were to say, I have got this trip prepared for you. It's on a ship, and I want you to pack. You're going to be gone for two months, and, and I want you to pack and prepare to head out to this ship. And you're like, well, what kind of a trip is it? I'll tell you when you get there. You know, well, how should I pack? Well, you'll see when you get there. So you're like, okay, sounds great. Brad has bought me a cruise. We're going to the Caribbean, and Brad, you know, that's not going to happen, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> But Brad has got me a cruise, and so you pack your shorts and your swimming trunks and your sandals and all that sort of thing, and you arrive at the ship only to look up and see a battleship. Because like, I have prepared for the wrong kind of voyage here. I have not equipped myself for what I'm going to need for the task at hand. It's the exact same point Paul's making here. If you prepare for your Christian life like you're going on a cruise ship, you're going to be sorely disappointed when you realize this is war. This task will require focus, it will require pain, it will require everything you have. Are you preparing for Christ's mission for his church like you're going on a cruise ship or like you're going on a battleship? As individuals, we have to ask ourselves, are we focused on the mission? Are we focused on the task that Christ has given us as people? Do you understand the target? Do you understand what we're shooting for? How big the task is that lies before the church? If you don't, I'd encourage you to visit one of the mission team's movie nights. It describes where the gospel is at in different cultures around the world. Visit one of our mission's highlights of missionaries coming back from overseas to explain what the task is like. Or sit down with Pastor Mike or Elizabeth Carlson and say, What does this look like? What is before us? What is the target? Ask yourself, Am I focused on the mission? and I'm pursuing the mission. For those of you that aren't sure where to start, start small. Start by praying for unbelieving friends and neighbors and coworkers. Start by praying for some of our missionaries that we support. Start by praying for those that don't know Christ or a people group overseas that doesn't know Christ. Consider hosting. Talk to Daryl or talk to Mike about hosting someone that doesn't know the gospel in your own home. Or maybe you're looking for something a little bit more than that. Consider how could you sacrifice your own freedoms, your own privileges, your own pleasures to give to a missions agency or a missionary to send overseas. A couple of years ago, we did a young adult cross, or conference, it's called the Cross Conference, and I love their terminology. They said, look, if you're a Christian, you are a missionary. Not in the technical sense, but you are called to the mission. You are either called to go, or you are called to enable others and send them. There's no neutrality here. You're either called to go yourself or you're called to help send others. What are you doing to consider going or to go yourself or to send others? Or even, like I said, consider what might God be calling me to do with my life? Am I willing to lay down my comfortable, privileged life here in order to go somewhere that they do not know the gospel? Sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, if God writes it on the wall, then all of a sudden I'll realize I'm a missionary, I'm called to go. Christ's command is go. It's a task we're all given. In a church this size, some of us are called to physically go. Pray about that. Consider if you're willing to lay down your preferences and what you would prefer in this life for the sake of what God is calling us to. Here's the point. We must pursue our mission with gospel-minded desire, a servant-minded disposition, and a single-minded dedication. The mission that stands before us as a church, as the church, is enormous. We've been promised Christ's presence and Christ's power to accomplish it. But are we focused on that mission? Have we adopted Paul's disposition, Paul's desire, Paul's dedication that we see here in 1 Corinthians 9? Let me give you an example of something that might challenge you here. Let me read the rest of this poem by William McChesney. He says this, I want my breakfast served at 8 with ham and eggs upon the plate. A well-broiled steak I'll eat at 1 and dine again when day is done. I want an ultra-modern home and in each room a telephone. Soft carpets, too, upon the floors and pretty drapes to grace the doors. A cozy place of lovely things like easy chairs with inner springs. Then I'll get a small TV. Of course, I'm careful what I see. I want my wardrobe, too, to be of neatest, finest quality. With latest style and suit and vest, why shouldn't Christians have the best? Then notice the turn. But then the master I can hear in no uncertain voice so clear. I bid you come and follow me, the lowly man of Galilee. Birds of the air have made their nest and foxes in their holes find rest. But I can offer you no bed, no place have I to lay my head. In shame, I hung my head and cried. How could I spurn the crucified? Could I forget the way he went, the sleepless nights in prayer he spent? forty days without a bite, alone he fasted, day and night. Despised, rejected, on he went, and did not stop till veil was rent. A man of sorrows and of grief, no earthly friend to bring relief. Smitten of God, the prophet said, mocked, beaten, bruised, his blood ran red. If he be God and died for me, no sacrifice too great can be. For me, a mortal man to make, I'll do it all. For Jesus' sake. Yes, I will tread the path he trod. No other way will please my God. So henceforth, this my choice shall be, my choice for all, eternity. Sometime later on November 25th, 1964, William McChesney was martyred in the Congo as a missionary. He was 28 years old. But he recognized what Christ had purchased with his blood and what the task was that was before him that God was calling him to pursue. Why shouldn't Christians have the best? I would say, well, that depends on what your timeline is. We are called to sacrifice immediate worldly preferences and pleasures and privileges for the sake of a future beyond imagination. We can settle for scrapping for every bit of worthless junk that this world has to offer, or we can tirelessly pursue Christ's best for us, the choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, give us the courage to be obedient to your command here. Give us the conviction to recognize what you're calling us to. Give us the courage to lay down our preferences and the easiness of our lives for the sake of seeing other people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, give us a boldness, light a passion in our hearts, convict us of our need to reach out both locally in our backyards and to support sending and going to the mission field. Billions of people that will die having never heard the message of the gospel. Lord, help that weight to fall on us. Lord, challenge us, but more importantly, encourage us. Give us a zeal and a passion to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.